Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We're delighted to have Dr. Singh with us today, and she'll be introduced in just a moment by Greg Ogrink. I wanted to make two quick announcements. One, in today's newspaper, the Valley News, you'll read about Dr. Hal Friedman, who's passed on. Hal's a giant was a giant here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and at Dartmouth because he was not only one of the very creative allergists we had with his wife in a practice for very many decades, but he also ran the admissions office at Geisel, Dartmouth Medical School at the time, for many years. And many of us here know, know his work, knew him well, and it's another passing of one of our lions in medicine here that, that uh, we should know about. The second thing is that we are in March, which is Colon Cancer Awareness Month, and today is Colon Cancer Awareness Day, and I've elected to stand outside the door, and I'll do, forget it. <laughs> We, uh, just to have you aware of that and know about that and, uh, and reflect on that with your patients. Without further ado, I'd like to have Greg Ogrink introduce Dr. Singh. Greg, as you know, is an Associate Professor of Medicine and in the TDI. He is the Associate Chief of Staff for Education at our White River Junction VA Hospital, and he's a Senior Associate Dean for Education at Geisel. Come talk to us about Dr. Singh. Thank you. So um, this is a real pleasure to be able to introduce uh, Dr. Singh, and I wanted to give just a tiny bit of background of how we're able to bring her here. So as many of you are aware, in 2014, the VA had a national scandal about access to care for veterans. And as part of that, Congress's reaction was to pass the Veterans Choice Act in August of 2014. Um, part of that bill included 1,500 new GME slots for VA and their affiliated academic medical centers. And White River and DH have uh, uh, several of those slots, and they're still being um, distributed over the next several years. Also, what comes with that is supplemental academic uh, educational funding for the VA. So we've received additional funding to renovate some of our education spaces, purchase educational materials, uh, supporting faculty FTE for education, and also to bring in guest faculty. So uh, Dr. Mimi Singh is our first guest faculty um, for uh, the supplemental education funding that we've received. Um, and I'm really pleased that we were able to coordinate her visit to White River with Grand Rounds here and to have Grand Rounds is sponsored by the Department of Medicine. Um, Dr. Singh is an Associate Professor of Medicine and the Assistant Dean of uh, Health Systems Science Education at Case Western Reserve University uh, School of Medicine. She's also the Physician Director of the Center of Excellence in Primary Care Education at the Lewis Stokes VA Medical Center and really has a tremendously deep interest in this uh, connection between primary care education, clinical care, and the improvement of both. And um, I think we're going to hear about that during her presentation. Her work has been uh, published in uh, many places, and she's also has very successful extramural funding from uh, HRSA, RWJ, Macy, and the VA Office of Academic Affiliations. Um, yesterday, she spent the day with us at White River. Um, 
um, looking at our primary care clinic, our ambulatory um, educational experiences, and I think we're actually full of a whole bunch of ideas of ways to make both the education better and the clinical care better at the same time. So we have a long to-do list um, at White River, I think, when, uh, when she heads back home. And if all that isn't enough, um, this is especially exciting for me because Dr. Singh and I were residents together. So we had the opportunity to train together at Metro Health Medical Center, and uh, it's always nice when you can bring someone that you know well and have worked with uh, as a colleague over the years. So, uh, Dr. Singh. So I'm checking the sound, and if, can everyone hear me? Yes. All right, well, thank you. Um, thank you again for that wonderful welcome. And as Greg mentioned, I really enjoyed the time yesterday with, um, with the team, both at White River Junction, as well as with the uh, Dartmouth um, uh, faculty. And I wanted to just mention that, and I was saying this yesterday, is that um, when you have great faculty and residents, and I got a chance to um, spend some time with the residents as well, you know, the systems building and the other things that's sort of on our to-do list is so much easier when you have the right folks. And I think from a human resource standpoint, it's always great <clears throat> to, to be able to say that, you know, you've got the right the right stuff. And, and it was really great to be able to spend time with folks. Um, and as Greg mentioned, we go way back. And so uh, a real opportunity to kind of see um, the trends that he set here. And so um, wonderful to be here. And so thank you um, for allowing me this opportunity. I'm going to actually talk about the um, training in the patient-centered medical home. And as we have over um, the last couple of years heard about the patient-centered medical home, um, both um, you know externally but within us at the VA, we've actually done a fair amount of work in terms of setting it up and then actually setting up training sites within it. And I'm hoping today to have a discussion about how we've done it and how we've come along. So in the next couple of minutes, um, an hour, I'm going to talk about the history of the patient-centered medical home, because this is a term that gets thrown around a lot, but um, what, what that necessarily means and how it um, fits together, I think, is a, is, a, is a piece that we need to talk about. But also the history of it, because um, I think popular belief is that this just started a couple of years ago, but this is actually a 40-year-old concept. So then it begs the question, why did it start now? And what did we, as a society, decide that, why did we as a society decide that this was something we needed to, um, to revisit? And then um, I'm going to spend a fair amount of the time kind of discussing our story at Cleveland, the Lewis Stokes Cleveland VA, and how we set up a training site within a patient center medical home. And so starting from the history and then kind of what we're doing and what we plan to do. So um, hope to um, have some discussion. So the historical overview. This is probably what goes through your mind when you use when you see the word, and a lot of people just come out like, "What does this mean?" And um, from a conceptual framework, you've probably seen a lot of discussions. Everything from, "Oh, this is the managed care of the 2015, and it'll be gone before we we know it," versus, um, "Is this really one of those accountable um, care organizations that are here to stay?" So hopefully, um, this picture will be a little uh, clearer to you after our discussion today. So just in terms of basic definition, 
It's a patient-centered medical home. is an interdisciplinary team-based healthcare model, and it's led by primary care providers. And it provides both comprehensive and continuous medical care, and health outcomes is built into it. And that's a key piece, because a lot of times in the past, whenever we've changed delivery models, the health outcomes piece is, tends to be more on the, uh, what I call the, la you know, it's sort of an afterthought. But this is something that's always been um, um, up front and center. And the, the general goal is better access to health care, increased satisfaction, improve health. Very similar to the triple aim that we hear about from the IOM. What's really interesting about this is this concept was originally introduced back in 1967. And so for those who've done history, um, a medical history, recognizing that the American Academy of Pediatrics actually came up with the concept of the patient center medical home way back then. And the idea was um, chronic disease patient, pediatric patients, especially those with special needs, um, the idea was a central source for all the medical information for all the providers because the idea was that the patients who come in, and you can imagine pediatric patients with special needs, not having to go to seven different providers or eight different providers, that they could all meet their needs within a single visit or a single day. Um, then. Literally for like the 80s and 90s, it kind of stayed quiescent. Pediatrics still did it, but most other primary care organizations didn't really pick up on it. And then back in 2002, seven family medicine organizations recommended that this is a really good concept and maybe something that we need to revisit, especially for the chronic diseases, but they actually came out and said that this might be something to, to, um, to think about. In 2005, the American College of Physicians, so now internal medicine's getting on board, and actually came up with some concepts. Well, let's think about the advanced medical home, and what does that entail? And I want to again bring up the fact that outcomes was up front and center, because that is something that I think in terms of delivery wasn't always the thought, especially um, in the past. And here are some of the key concepts, as I've mentioned here, evidence-based medicine, clinical decision support tools, the chronic care model, um, medical care plans, access, indicators for quality, information technology, feedback for performance, and payment reform. I think if people have remember, the, if those who remember the managed care organization, nothing this comprehensive was actually ever really um, thought about in terms of the delivery piece. So then the question, um, Then a group of folks back in 2007, and this is actually the sort of pivotal point came, came in 2007 when the American Association of Family Practice, the a American Association of Pediatrics, the Osteopathic Association, and the American College of Physicians, so all the primary care folks kind of got together and, and rallied behind the fact that we should actually have these key concepts when we think about our delivery methodology. So bottom line, a team of folks taking care of patients with chronic disease. So if you think about it, why all of a sudden, so why 40 years later? What, what started happening? Because when we were having the first conversation related to healthcare delivery uh, reorganization, or when we were really thinking about insurance reorganization back in um, Clinton ages, um, this wasn't something that people were talking about, but this kind of started to, to come together. And some of the things that people have suggested as to why the stars, quote unquote, were aligning were things like this. So our prevalence of chronic disease in the U.S., and again, not something I have to tell this group, but is essentially, you know, it's gone from 118 million sort of in the mid-90s to almost 171 million is predicted in, in um, that's, that's more than 50% of the population. 
And the next slide is actually going to sh uh, that I'm going to show is um, related to obesity. Again, a slide that I'm sure most of you have seen. But if you look at our prevalence of self-reported obesity in the United States, now self-reported is really, really critical. When you look at this um, for the US adults, in 2011, compared to the next slide, just the orange being the, the slate, is the states that are um, you know, majority, more than 30%, 35%. This is essentially where we've gone from 2011, in within five years, not even five years. So if you think about the complications, and those of us who do chronic disease management, the complications that come from this one condition itself, not to mention diabetes, hypertension, things like that, you can already imagine sort of the, the, um, the concerns that we are going to be facing, not to mention the um, elderly population, the geriatric population. So I think the point of all of this is maybe the timing of why we started to think about a patient-centered medical home model or chronic disease model really started fitting with some of the urgencies that were coming, that we were seeing face-to-face. -face. And that even in the 90s, not too long ago, when we were thinking about reorganizing delivery, these things didn't, weren't necessarily hitting us in the face and we weren't necessarily thinking that, oh, we probably need to consider how we're managing and change, uh, how we're delivering care because our patient population has changed. So if we look at that, the next question is, those of us who have been doing a patient-centered medical home model, what are the results? Are we getting the results? Because I want to be very clear, when this first came up, and especially in the VA setting, there was a lot of like, oh, here comes the managed care group again, you know, this is another delivery thing that's going to last about a couple of years and it's going to, you know, but I think one of the things that they have been very deliberate about in this delivery reorganization is really measuring whether change is actually occurring in, 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 and at the clinical level, at the level that we all as providers really care about. Are we making an impact in care? So I hope in the next couple of slides that I can um, show you um, what, what has been done both within the VA and outside. So let me just give a real quick definition because I sort of changed from patient-centered medical home to patient-aligned care teams. This is what the VA calls the patient-centered medical home, and I can get into why we changed the term from the civilian population, but the biggest notion was the term medical home was not necessarily something the veterans were very um, excited about. And I think politically it was better to kind of keep it um, out of the, the idea of homes because there was this notion of that this was something to do with nursing homes and putting people away. So the change was, um, was a deliberate one and it was made sort of at a, at a very uh, national level. But we do deliver our care in the PAC. So just for future slides, please recognize that the principles that I mentioned for patient-centered medical home were actually are the same um, for the PACT team. So PACT is um, equivalent to that. So just to give you a sense of what the VA has done. VA delivers almost uh, care, delivers care to fi almost 5.8 million veterans and approximately 16.4 million encounters annually. So all to say that we have plenty of um, space to study. In 2010, the VA actually decided that all primary care delivery will be done in a medical home model. And one of the best things about a comprehensive care system is when you decide you're going to do something, you do it. 
You don't have to sit around and get a lot of buy-in. It was just a swooping mandate come down between 2009 and 2010, and everybody complied. So now, um, as of now, 80 to 90 percent, actually close to almost 100 percent of uh, veterans are getting care in some form of patient-centered medical home model or packed model. There's 160 large primary care clinics within the VA and um, 783 community-based clinics, or otherwise known as CBOCs. And our patient-aligned care teams, again, as I mentioned, is the other term for the um, patient-centered medical home. So what does that look like? So that's the first question. And as I mentioned, this is a team of patients taking care of a panel, team of uh, providers taking care of a panel of patients. So um, I liken it to um, when those of us who do inpatient, we sort of have our list of folks that we're going to see on the wards, and we kind of know who that list is, or who those folks on the list are. So if you think about it, this is now your panel, not necessarily the people that you're seeing just in clinic that day, but also folks that you might be doing proactive care management with, people that you'll be doing population health management with, people that you might do virtual health clinics with. So again, recognizing that your panel isn't just consisting of the folks that are sitting in front of you or who are coming here for your individual um, um, appointments. Your teamlet, uh, so about 1,200 patients per team, and your team lead consists of a primary care provide, provider, and I want to be very clear, that could be also an MD or an NP, um, a registered nurse, a licensed, um, an LPN, and a clerk, a clerk associate, or some people call them PCAS. Um, at RVA, we call, them, uh, call the uh, group the PCAS. And as I mentioned already, some of the practice management, practice changes are everything from virtual health, telephone appointments are actually a big push, secure messaging. So again, sort of not thinking of the patient just of those who come to your individual visits. And that's what the PAC delivery piece is. And visually, I wanted to just show them in the next two slides what this means. This is the traditional model, sort of the, clin the schedule and everything is kind of organized around the provider and then everybody has to work around their schedule. And then the PACT model actually pushes um, that model into a different realm, which is that the patient is essentially at the center and that your teamlet and the folks that help support the teamlet are now kind of working together. And if you think about it from the standpoint of chronic disease management, which is very different than acute care, this actually makes a lot of sense because we eventually have to think about how are we empowering the patients to manage their conditions when they're not with us. Because acute care, we, can, we are able to do it right in, in real time. But a lot of diabetes management, hypertension management, all the other things is what they're doing when they're not with us. Our 20-minute visit aside, what's happening the other 364 days of the year. And so really that sort of shifts the paradigm about how we think about delivering the care and how we actually are gonna train folks to deliver the care, which I will get into in just a minute. So just uh, to kind of bring that up. So how are we doing? So group health in Seattle, and this is sort of an outside VA, and this was originally when the first um, PACT models were coming in. They did a one-year implementation of patient-centered medical homes. It was about a sample size of 9,200 patients. And they noticed that, again, a team of folks taking care of this population, 29% reduction in ER visits, 11% decrease in hospitalizations, and 6% reduction in inpatient visits. This 
is very interesting because, again, as I mentioned, they were starting to look for these outcomes, even though this might one might say, well, these are all resource-driven. But if you think about it, these are all the things that our patients want as well. Nobody wants to sit in the ER. Nobody wants to be admitted to the hospital. So it really starts getting into the patient satisfaction and the health outcomes or health resource utilization actually starting to make sense and to be aligned. And, so, uh, and they also looked at uh, patient and provider satisfaction and saw improvement. So what about the VA? What did we do? We also started to study this. And um, we, just to kind of give you a sense of where we got our information from, um, we used our data warehouse. The VA has lots of data. The VA, um, and we looked at basically the total number of active uh, patients assigned. And remember, I said 80 to 90% of folks were already being uh, managed in a patient-centered medical home or PACT model. And we looked at, um, the, the VA looked at all primary care uh, patients at the, were included regardless of status of the implementation. So, you know, different people kind of started at different times, but they kind of did a, a, a big sample um, looking at this. And I'll try to orient you to this slide, but I think the, the if you look at the blue line there with the arrow, um, hold on, let me see if I can do this without, yeah. So here's essentially the initiation of PACT. And so pre and post PACT, if you look at some of the, um, some of the uh, changes in process, there was a steady increase in access and continuity, and um, large increase, the purple line, let me see if I can, large increase in pre, a post-hospital follow-up. So the VA actually has a, um, it's a mandate, that post-discharge, everybody who's been discharged from the hospital should be contacted in some form or way um, within two days. And that was actually a measure that was being hard, that was really hard to uh, manage. And that doesn't have to necessarily mean that the veteran has to come into the uh, clinic, that somebody has to have contacted them and checked in on them um, post-hospital discharge. And there's about a 48-hour um, uh, window that you do it. And if you think about it, when they went to this team model and actually started delegating, interestingly, this was kind of an increase that everybody um, thought favorably of. And there was a small increase in secure messaging and um, secure message enrollment utilization, but I'll be honest, it wasn't, as, it wasn't, uh, it was expected to be a lot higher. Because remember, I mentioned that the face-to-face the -face visits was no longer the only defining, quote-unquote, access to care. And I think a lot of um, original thought was that this was going to um, go up as well. But there was a modest increase, but the biggest was, um, as I mentioned, the um, post-hospital follow-up. Now, what about uh, phone care visits? So there was a large increase, patient access and utilization, large increase in uh, phone care visits. And again, the blue lines are pre and post pack. And if you look at um, the number of total phone encounters. Now on the next slide, what actually shows up is the face-to-face -face visits actually trended downward. And that would want, one would expect that, is if you can manage some of these things. And I want to be very clear that the VA actually pays or gets credit for phone visits. So if you actually do a phone visit and you encounter, just like as if you encountered a face-to-face -face visit, you actually get clinical and uh, clinical credit for that, which is, I know, I recognize that that's a little different outside the VA. But appreciating the fact that if you actually need, if the idea is to get access to your veterans and the veterans getting access to you, and actually being able to follow up, then it makes sense that we should be sort of thinking, quote unquote, outside the box about how to do that. And that waiting for everybody to come into a 20 minute appointment, um, well, given the numbers that I've shown you, I don't think that that's a sustainable model. And I think the VA was recognizing that as we move, as we move forward. So a moderate decrease in number of in-person per visits, but um, again, utilization uh, access in terms of um, other modalities was improving. 
So I'm going to shift gears here because this study, I think, kind of helps really quantify some of the changes that have occurred. So what I've shown you up till now has been kind of some of the trends and processes. Now let's go to, let's get drilled down to some of the nitty gritty details about um, care. So in 2014, Corinne Nelson, a group out of Seattle, and um, uh, other VAs, the original demonstrate, the VA originally um, paid for five demonstration labs in, in packed model of care. And they looked at this, um, so what about staff burnout? What about hospitalizations? What about ED visits? Things like that. So this paper, again, is, um, is a really um, what I'd call an, another critical piece in terms of the story. So they came up with something called Pi Square. Packed Implementation Progress Index. So, um, and so you will, if those who are in the VA, they might have heard this term thrown around uh, a bit. But what is Pi Square? It, essentially, they, came, they looked at how do you know if somebody is packed? or PACD, if you will. And it's an, it essentially looks at different sites and says how much patient-centered medical home implementation has occurred, how integrated is the uh, PACT model within the clinic, and how do they go about doing this. There's an observational study, about 5.6 million veterans, so quite a bit of folks. Um, they actually covered 5,000 uh, 5, primary care staff, 913 VHA hospitals, and CBOX, or community-based clinics. And I want to mention that because this wasn't some site just done in Seattle or some small place done down in D.C. This, they actually did a very comprehensive review, and they surveyed veterans um, uh, for about six months in 2012, from June to December, and they actually did a pretty um, strong survey of the primary care staff um, at their different sites in um, 2012. 2012, just in June. Eight core domains. Again, none of these domains should look unfamiliar at this point. They, they uh, seem to capture the concepts that the patient center medical home is um, talking about. Access, continuity, care coordination, comprehensiveness, um, self-management support, patient-centered care and communication, shared decision-making, and team-based care. There's about 53 elements that actually were around across these surveys within these eight, um, eight specific domains, and they implemented it. And how they came up with the, and then they came up with this pi square, and the outcomes they looked at, as the as the article title mentions, is patient satisfaction rates, rates of hospitalizations, emergency department use, quality of care, and they also looked at staff burnout, which is really critical. Again, I think that I, I want to just point out that I think this was very forward thinking on their part because a lot of times we sort of look at what I call one side of the of the story, and they look well. We we were really able to reduce ER visits, but when you go back and you do, it's like half the staff left in the process, or you know your clinic no longer has staffing. You know, so I think the fact that they were kind of looking at uh, the entire spectrum was, was very commendable on their part. So just to kind of, um, again, orient people, and I'm going to spend a few uh, minutes on this slide. So the scores on the left-hand side, and I'm going to try to do this without um, making people dizzy, the pi square, so the higher numbers are obviously better packed implementation um, in their clinics. And then the lower decile here, which is the negative numbers, are, um, are the folks that aren't quite packed if you will. And about 77 clinics, if you look, compared um, in the high decile, compared to the lower ones, 87. And when you look at things like patient um, provider ratings from um, surveys in terms of patient satisfaction, the numbers are statistically significant. I'm sorry. Um, so if you look at this 9.33 in the high uh, pi square uh, clinic versus 7.53 in a low pack, significant. Same things come out 
in the other ones, but I just wanted to, for purposes of um, brevity, wanted to bring up that you know this was across the, across the board. Now, also in burnout, and specifically in the subscale, the um, burnout index, they looked at emotional exhaustion, and again, lower for those who had high pi squares compared to those in the low, and again, statistically significant. And I and I and I want to bring that up again, is because I did think it was a very important piece that they they were um, willing to look at, just not just you know. Did we, did we reduce ER visits, but what, what were we doing at the staff level as well? What about ER visits? So when you look at the PI-square again, comparing the clinics in the um, higher decile compared to the low ones, the emergency uh, department visits reduced, so 188, and again, Actually, hospitalization numbers did not go, did not change. But when the next slide actually uh, talks about rates, and that actually did show both for the uh, patients less than 65, when you look at comparatively, and patients greater than 65. So when you when actual numbers were counted, then it didn't actually look like the hospitalizations had gone down. But when you looked at it per thousand in terms of their, um, and I want to be very clear. So one thing that the VA looks at is these ambulatory sensitive conditions, and by definition, those are conditions that um, and they're sort of predetermined by the VA. Are what are things that could have been managed in the outpatient setting that a patient chose to go to the ED for? And the idea is that those are the ones we probably want to focus on, them not going to the ED for. Because there are some ER visits, the goal isn't to reduce you know, the person who's having an MI not to go to the ED, right? So, so it's very clear, and I like the fact that the VA actually makes it very predictable. What are the ASCs that you're looking at, and what are the ones that you think, well, if we really have a robust primary care foundation and a delivery system that works, and you should actually see reduction in the ASCs that are going to the ED. And it looks like both for the greater than 65 and less than 65, we were able to, um, to show that. So hot off the press, um, just in summary points, compared with the 87 clinics in the, in the lowest decile, the 77 in the top had higher patient satisfaction. There was, they also looked at quality indicators, and I didn't show you that slide because it's such a busy slide, but essentially 41 of the 48 uh, qual, uh, of the quality indicators and a lot of the things that we see, that's not VA specific, you know, our LDLs managed for the diabetics or hemoglobin A1C is less than nine, things like that. There are higher performances in the groups um, that had, quote unquote, higher pi squares, um, lower staff burnout, as I mentioned, lower hospitalization um, rates for ambulatory sensitive conditions and the lower emergency department use. So to say that this is actually um, something that I think from a sustainability standpoint, this is showing promise. And I think compared to some of the stuff that was um, earlier in, um, in the mid-90s and stuff, this is the PACT model seems to have, a, um, have, have some things that are both for the patient as well as for, um, for the providers or the healthcare system seem to be aligning in terms of um, care delivery that, um, that shows some promising trends. So then the next question, and the one that um, sort of near and dear to my heart, is well, if we're gonna have this model, and it does seem like it's, it's kind of uh, has some promise and then it might stick around, we have to think about who's gonna actually work in these places, and how are we gonna think about training folks to work in these places? Because I've already mentioned several points of how this change is, uh, there's a change in paradigm and a change of how we think about the patients and how we manage these patients. 
And I, th I want to give a shout out to our Office of Academic Affiliations here, which is our um, academic arm of the VA, because they started asking this question right after we went into a packed delivery system. Because I think the folks at the top were like, wait a minute, if we're going to do this, who's going to actually staff these clinics if we're not training folks to be able to work at it? So if these, if these are going to be sites for training, are we actually teaching folks how to work in these models? So. OA, and just to give you guys a sense of your of who um, who what OA does or Office of Academic Affiliation does, it is the largest single provider of clinical education. A lot of folks um, sometimes think that um, you know just the old uh, sort of traditional GME, but we the VA actually provides quite a bit of clinical education across many disciplines, not just medicine. Um, over 100,000 trainees and over 40 health professions. Um, about 120 out of the 153 medical centers are affiliated with medical schools. There's over 5,000 affiliation agreements. We have the second largest funding of just medical education. So here, not necessarily talking about all health professions education. And if you look at the budget there, that's a pretty uh, significant portion, 653 uh, million. And um, only federal department presently increasing support. And I think Greg mentioned that earlier, is that when one of the things that came up in terms of um, some of the concerns related to Phoenix, one of the things um, OAA and the VA decided to do is, well, maybe if we improve um, you know, access and increase training, that might be one way to handle it. But this is the only place. So other GME um, sites are actually, other GME funding has actually been frozen for some time, but the VA has actually been the place where um, still funding is going on. So when they asked this question about the training sites, they actually decided to fund five original sites back in 2010 to basically answer this question. How are you going to train folks in a patient-centered medical home model? And five of us um, uh, were uh, fortunate enough to get, get the uh, original grant back in 2010. It was a $5 million five-year grant. In San Francisco VA, Boise VA, Seattle VA, Cleveland VA, and West Haven VA were the original what they call legacy sites. Since then, two new sites have been um, added this last year, um, Houston and Greater uh, Los Angeles. Those of us who did this start from the beginning, we really were testing innovative curriculum to really think about how do we answer this question that I asked before. How do you train folks in this kind of model, and how do you, um, what does that look like? Dr. Jesse, who um, some of you might know from, um, from the VA, his vision of this was, and prior to him, Dr. Malcolm Cox, the goal of the Centers of Excellence is to transform the primary care workforce where it actually happens, both at the site. So if we're really going to have these models of you know, teams working together, downstream are we actually teaching people how to work in teams. If we're training folks to be individual autonomous folks and then we're going to expect them to work in team models, you can see the disconnect and you can see some of the angst that potentially could be caused by this. So what is the COE or the Center of Excellence in Primary Care Education's purpose? The goal, and like I said, was they gave us money to develop and test innovative approaches um, related to core competencies in patient-centered care. And then not only to do this, but to study the impact of these approaches. And that was the piece that was um, that has that I'm hoping to sort of share with you is that we not only just implemented, but we were really looking at not only what happens at the trainee level, the competency level, which is you know again as a medical educator I just stop there, but does that training then translate into clinical outcomes? 
something that I don't think we ask quite enough because I think a lot of times we think, oh, trainees, they're nomads, they're transient, they'll be here, they'll be gone. But if we really start asking, or at least force ourselves to ask, what are the clinical implications of some of these training changes, we actually might be surprised. And I think a lot of times our, our trainees and our learners actually um, provide a fair amount of, we know that they provide a fair amount of frontline care, but somehow measuring it, we sort of tend to um, hem and haw about it. And so it was really pushing the envelope and saying, no, not just training competencies. We want you to really look at also clinical outcomes. And, um, and I'll talk a little bit about that in, in a few, um, few minutes. I want to share the conceptual framework behind how we sort of organized our curriculum, because I think a few, second, a few minutes on that is helpful as, as I um, share what we do. So as I've mentioned, the patient is at the center of, um, of all of this. And caring and learning, again, in a training site, is, is synergistic. What I think the key piece is that any educational reform and system redesign have to go together. All too often, I think, and I say this, and I've done it myself, we didactic our way around things, which is, well, we'll give them a lecture about this. We'll talk about interprofessional education and how to work in teams, but we don't change the clinical site to where they can see that actually happening. I mean, learners and trainees are not, you know, they're, they're brilliant folks, and they figure out real quickly what's part of the hidden curriculum. Well, I don't need to know this stuff. I never use it. And so I think one of the things that this really gives you the framework to sort of recognize is, look, if we're going to actually do this, we're going to put our money where our mouth is, this isn't just about, I'm going to give you a lot of talk about shared decision making, but never expect you to use it in clinic. Or I'm going to tell you that you really need to own your patients, but give you, you know, uh, six hours of clinic a week and then somehow expect you to, to manage around it. So it's really thinking about if we're going to ask them to do this and if we're going to train them to do this in the mm -hmm. curriculum section mm -hmm. of things, in the educational reform section, then what is the system redesign that goes with it? And really trying to make sure that those two are aligned. And that's the piece that I think conceptually all five sites really thought about when they were um, putting this together. I don't expect you to go through all of this, but I want you to recognize that just, this is kind of a nice summary slide. If you look at how we provide care, and let's just pick one. Patients are responsible for coordinating their own care. A prepared team of professionals coordinates all patients' care. I know I deliver high quality care because I'm well trained. We measure our quality and make rapid changes to improve it. If you just start thinking that the paradigm is shifting, you already see that the skill sets need to change along with it. There's nothing in this skills, in this section that prepares them or equips them to do what's in the other section. If you're not giving them opportunities, and I'm talking about trainees and learners here, to actually do improvement work or to think about quality improvement, you expect them to sort of think that you know, what we're doing is really standard of care, but not really recognizing or measuring it. If we're not giving them those tools or giving them the equipment or empowering them to think that way, then we're not necessarily equipping them for the future that we're talking about here. You know, and any of these things in terms of, you know, um, and I, one of the things I talk about is a lot of care, the way we train folks is reactive care. Once the problem happens, then come to me and I'll fix it. We're really talking about a proactive approach. Let's try to prevent this from happening. So who on my panel has a hemoglobin A1C greater than nine? What do I do with those folks, those 15 folks on my panel? How do I approach them? Who do I contact? How do I discuss this? Who are my resources? 
there's a lot of ifs in there, a lot of questions that I can imagine a trainee having is like, what, who am I supposed to, how, who's the RN care manager I'm supposed to go to? Who's a diabetic educator? Should I send them to pay an SMA, a shared medical appointment, or should I just see them in my clinic? All of a sudden, you're really questioning how do you use your resources and how do you use that team to manage those panel of patients with the chronic conditions. And so we, this is essentially forcing one to think, forcing us to think about how we're training folks. So what did we do? And so the next couple of slides I'll, I'll spend um, talking about our um, Cleveland VA and our specific center and how we went about doing both this educational reform and system redesign. I wanted to start off what I call at the end, <laughs> which is here's a letter from one of, um, and I did get permission from everybody on here <laughs> to, pro to post this. This is one of my team-led patients, so I, w I felt comfortable asking my resident to do this. But this was a veteran who actually sent a letter to me specifically um, commending my um, resident and our LPN on the team about the care um, he received. And this actually went to both me and to um, uh, Ms. Fuhrer, our uh, director, and essentially saying that they both paid, uh, both Jane and Raj, paid outstanding attention to my medical history. Neither of them rushed me. They took the time to answer each and every question and to make sure that I was satisfied. Dr. Raj even called me the night before Thanksgiving to check up on me. So that's, again, an end product that I wanted to, to, to mention because Getting this, I mean, to men, not to mention the excitement that he had when he received this, but the fact that, you know, he was actually able to see that his care that he was providing actually was making an impact, and the same for Jane. This is another one, you can't see it, but one of our NP residents also received a letter, and this letter actually went directly to Sufir, our, clinic, our um, medical director stating the care that the, he, this veteran received from um, uh, the NP resident was outstanding. And this actually uh, is a copy to Dr. McDonald. And Sufir and I got a, a CC copy as well. So recognizing that when you do actually impress the veterans, you know, I know in the media we always hear the other side of the story, but when you actually do impress the veterans, they do go out of their way to make sure people know about it. And this is a cake that one of my residents who was about to get married and their patient, who was a baker, came in the middle of quite a bit of snow <laughs> to deliver this cake because she, he knew that she was leaving to get married and that they had a long-term relationship and that he wanted to make sure that she got this before she left for her trip. This is all to say that I think, again, if you build a system, it does allow for these things to happen. And I'm sure there are plenty of stories like this. I'm not saying that Cleveland has the, uh, the, um, you know, the stamp on this. But recognizing, again, that if we do build this, there are opportunities for these things to happen. And um, it, was, it was hard to pass up. So how do we get here? How did we get to this kind of space? Our mission for our transforming outpatient care, which is our term for um, the Center of Excellence, is to empower physicians, nurses, and as I mentioned, this is an interdisciplinary team, um, pharmacy, social work, and psychology to effectively lead and participate in these patient-centered medical home teams, um, both not only to meet the needs of the patient, but also to improve um, consistent high quality. 
we have a fair amount of folks that work with us. And in, within Cleveland, we actually have two major residency programs that are literally in our backyard. And so we affiliate with both the Cleveland Clinic Foundation and the University Hospitals. And we have two nursing schools that we affiliate with as well. And um, we also do a fair amount of work with our Weatherhead School of Management because everybody that comes to the, um, comes to the COE or is one of the COE residents gets um, Lean Six Sigma certified, yellow belt certification as part of their training, uh, training in the, um, the COE. So recognizing that we do that. So who are the folks that we um, are, that are part of this program? We have 12 residents per class. Um, we have four NP residents. We have four uh, NP students that both come from Ursuline and um, Case Western. We have two health psychology residents, two pharmacy residents, social work, and then we have MD students, especially during the summertime. <clears throat> Our curriculum. So when we started, we actually had, um, back in 2010, we had a physician and a an, uh, nursing co-director leadership. Dr. Jelansky and I um, ran the COE. Um, there was also a co-precepting model in clinic, which was our, um, which means that MDs and NPs were actually co-precepting, and our clinic model itself was a longitudinal immersive experience. And then the next slide, I think I, I talked a little bit about this. All our residents have didactics together on Friday morning. So when you're in ambulatory, your sessions together are, um, are um, it, all your sessions are together on Friday morning. And again, as I mentioned, not only are we doing this, but we're studying what works and what doesn't as sort of a continuous quality improvement approach. The four educational domains or competencies that we were asked to um, uh, to be part of the R that was supposed to be part of the RFP and they are very strongly part of it is these four mentioned here: shared decision making, long-term or sustained relationships, interprofessional collaboration, and quality improvement or performance improvement. The slide's too busy. I'll just tell you in two points. We have longitudinal immersive experiences, and at, at our VA, we actually do 12 weeks of ambulatory on and 12 weeks off, and they're paired. The students are paired together. The, I'm sorry, the med residents are paired together. So when the resident is on outpatient, one resident's on inpatient, and then they flip. But together, they manage a panel of 200, 250 patients. And so it's a shared practice model. So when the veteran actually comes in, they know that this, these are the two folks that are going to be your, uh, and then there, of course there's an attending of record, and these are the two folks that will be your resident care for the next three years. So recognizing that, and then they do things, um, and I'll show you a slide um, that, you know, other things they do like subspecialty clinic and uh, PAL management. So here's an example of what a resident clinic would look like, a resident schedule would look like when they're 12 weeks on the ambulatory, and there's resident A and resident B. And, you know, again, they have three primary care clinics. They might actually have one, um, or they'll have an urgent care clinic, they'll have some subspecialty clinics, and they actually then have either geriatrics or women's health. And again, Friday morning is a formal didactic for everyone 8 to 12 um, in the COE space. And that is, no matter what discipline you are, you have to come back and we do, um, and I'll talk a little bit about what, are we, what do we do on the cur curricular side. So, um, but then this essentially, the schedule repeats itself for um, 12 weeks straight, so this is a typical. And this is what, um, and I mentioned this quite a bit yesterday, is like this is what a, car, what a card would look like that we give to our uh, veterans. Who are the, who's your team? And again, the, the residents who are paired would be at the top. The attending of record would be um, on the back or at the, at the top. But the veterans know that these are their primary care providers. And then who are the uh, PAC team members that are part of it? And they get their extension and um, how to reach them and all that information. And this is printed out when, at the start of the rotation for all the residents. So what are some of the things we do on Friday morning? 
and I've mentioned this um, in a lot of discussions yesterday, but I think the key pieces are how do we get an interdisciplinary team to come together and talk about some of the things that we, um, you know, some of the complications and some of the chronic disease um, conditions that we've, that we've been um, alluding to here. So we have everything from panel management, which is essentially, you know, we give them a half day to really look at their panel. So they have about 200, 250 patients on their panel. They um, look at, you know, who are the outliers, who's going to the ED a lot, why is somebody getting rehospitalized? Does somebody need mental health um, integration a little more? You know, should somebody go to pain SMA? So really doing a population approach in those half days. We actually have the residents all do some reflection exercises. Our CMA, our Cleveland Museum of Art, is literally in our back room, we, backyard at the VA. So we, um, we have the advantage of, like, walking over and having field trips with them. But it's an opportunity to do some reflection and some, um, some ways to actually improve observation skills. We actually give them opportunities to do telephone clinic and virtual health clinic. They do go on home health visits. And then Aligning Care Options is a conference where they actually bring a complicated patient and consultants, and they discuss um, what am I supposed to do with this patient. And normally these are not diagnostic dilemmas, sort of what we think of as traditional concerns. It's more I know the diagnosis, I know the therapeutics, but I can't seem to get this person to do what he or she needs to do. And how do I get them to do it? And we usually have social work and um, nursing and medicine and pharmacy, everybody there, and they come up with a, a basically a care coordination action plan so that they know what to do with that particular patient. We The, the residents kind of call this the pit of their stomach patient um, conference, which is the patient that you see on your schedule, and you're like, I don't know what to do with him or her, and what am I supposed, how am I supposed to manage him? So really getting an opportunity to see all the disciplines at work. We actually have the patient uh, residents videotape themselves, and we do a peer review feedback and um, faculty uh, feedback in one of the sessions on Friday morning. So we do a lot of evaluation. And this slide is just to say, do not worry. We were studying this um, ad nauseum. But everything from the curriculum all the way to the clinical outcomes, what is it that people, how, are we, how do we think we're doing? So I wanted to just share some of the things. And I'm going to kind of um, go from how do residents feel or express their um, learning to some of the clinical outcomes. So we do have all graduating residents no matter a discipline. They have to write an essay. They have to pick one of the four competencies that I mentioned and write an essay about how is it that you think you met that competency. But not only do you say, well, I met it, but what is the evidence backed behind, like how you thought you did it? So just to share some things that um, some of the residents have said, and we have we have several essays, but just one of the, one of the um, res and I try to take some from all four competencies, but I've learned to appreciate the value of shared decision making as a shared responsibility, in contrast to the old notion of the doctor being solely responsible for the care of the patients. And then he goes on to um, talk about how that is. One of the most compelling components of the COE program is the amount of continuity that residents share with their patient panel. <laughs> Looking specifically at my panel, there's a wide variety of both medical and social issues. I've been successful in engaging my patients to help them make better decisions about their health and overall uh, well-being. And they, he specifically uh, talks about, I know it's a he because I know who I pulled it from, but specifically talks about the fact that this patient's hemoglobin A1C, they were able to reduce it from 14 to 11.7, which I know by evidence we still have a ways to go, but if you think about it from a resident panel standpoint, being able to move that needle was a big deal. 
Um, this first resident actually did a uh, quality improvement project on improving potent area, and he talked a little bit about, you know, his my project to improve the management of CKD has been particularly rewarding, and at the foundation of this project, though brief, was the Lean Six Sigma training that we received. Using this training, I received, I reviewed the available data and carefully evaluated components of CKD in our COE practice and um, that could be improved. And then the last one, I vividly remember my excitement and apprehension on day one of my rotation. The concept of a PAC team was new to us then and a bit overwhelming, and now it seems impossible to be working without this model. And so these are direct quotes. I wanted to share this with you. One of our residents was applying for a job and her LPN on her team actually wrote her um, a letter uh, to show, a reference letter. And I think that this is more to underscore the fact that when you're working with a team, it's no longer just about the task around the patients, but did you actually develop relationships and that these, um, you know, this is sort of what I call things that we may not have necessarily been thinking when we set this up, but some of the nice um, pieces that come out of this when, um, when you think about it. So an opportunity, again, to create a system that allows for this to happen. Scholarly activity is a really big part of what we do, and actually all of our residents, since quality improvement is, a, um, is one of the uh, core domains, they actually all have to do a quality improvement project within the ambulatory um, clinical setting. And they've been um, both at the AAMC IQ, but at, also at the IHI National Forum. And we've, we so far, Knockwood, four years, 100% um, um, acceptance rate for those. And then both our faculty as well, uh, faculty in the COE as well as our residents have been able to um, present at different um, national meetings uh, some of their work. And this is just a list of all the QI projects that residents are doing, but recognizing that these are projects resident-led and usually within their PAC teams um, that they're being done, again, the clinical piece and the curriculum piece coming together, which is a really critical piece of our, our mission. This is a poster that they presented at um, the IHI National Forum. So what do our trainees actually think? This is our huddle board. We meet every uh, Monday and Wednesday morning and we huddle in front of it at eight o'clock um, on the dot. So what do the trainees actually think about this in addition to some of the things that I've mentioned? They do feel like they have a better sense of how the, inter uh, how the professions work together. Again, I wanna bring up that when we talk about interprofessional education or team-based care, but we don't give them opportunities to see how that looks or what that looks like, especially when it's successful, then there's a bit of a disconnect. And they're like, well, that's great, and it's, you know, it's motherhood and apple pie, but the reality is, what does it actually do? Does it actually improve things, and does it actually make the care better? Um, so our trainees have recognized that there's um, value learning from other professions as well as um, team-based approach to patient care. And as I mentioned in, this, uh, in the other slide, a lot of people saying, I can't imagine working in a team. So some nitty-gritty data, just in the interest of time. Um, we actually did look at, we did actually trainee um, surveys, and this was actually Office of Academic Affiliation, so our academic arm did this. We at the COE at our levels did do it, and they actually interviewed, um, actually asked trainees from all sites um, to, co to comment on their um, satisfaction. And 159 emails were sent. We got a pretty good response rate across the um, four sites, and this was just last year, between um, March and April of last year. So the Cleveland story. So we had a fair amount of medicine and nursing, only allied health, we only had one person. But when you think about, when we ask questions like, do you think that the Cleveland COE provides patient-centered team-based health? 
um, a majority of the folks actually thought that that was the case, mostly and completely. And does it support integration of trainees in the patient-centered medical home model or the PACT model, which is critical. And again, most people felt like they were part of a team. This was really important to those of us at the VA. How many of you would actually consider primary care pre and post joining the COE? And if you look at unlikely before joining, 46% dropped to 26.9, but likely did go up almost double. This is you know <coughs> primary care, so remember, um, I, we're not in a primary care-friendly uh, city, I'll be very honest with you, but um, the fact that we moved the needle at all was a, was a big one. Um, what about seeking employment opportunities in the VA? And I think this one caught us by surprise, actually, because likely before the COE, about 34% went up to almost 88% after the uh, COE experience. Again, recognizing that, you know, most people had not seen themselves doing this, but we've given them the opportunity to consider this as um, something they might do. This was one of our residents actually featured in um, uh, a, a, the story about his panel management experience and how he was able to actually make an improvement in some of his uh, patients with diabetes. In the interest of time, I'll just, um, two other slides. We looked at ED visits over time, and you can see our patient population has essentially <laughs> We almost have like 4,000 patients in this, uh, being seen by the Center of Excellence residents. And if you look at our ED visits, it's actually thankfully stayed um, pretty, uh, you know, despite the numbers going up almost triple, that um, the numbers, the uh, rate of uh, ED visits has actually stayed pretty sta uh, standard. And then looking at diabetes control, again, the number of patients um, have, uh, red on red might not work, but essentially, if you look at it over time, even the fact that um, type 2 diabetics, um, the uncontrolled, are actually um, you know, a, a disproportionately less than those who are controlled. So something, again, we really want to be able to say that not only are we making um, improvement at the competency level, but that we're also um, thinking about this um, at the clinical level. So more to come on that. And then I just uh, want to bring up the fact that even though I'm standing here representing this incredible group, it takes a village to do something. And I, I would be amiss not to, uh, to shout out to my team who's sitting at home, but recognize that we couldn't be doing this if, if it wasn't for all of these folks. So thank you for the opportunity, and I will take questions. <laughs> Maybe I'll take the first question. Can you tell us about how the attitudes changed in the clinicians who went through the process of, of the restructuring, the organization, and leading teams now in a time when they didn't necessarily do that for much of their career? Sure, sure. Um, so great question. So this isn't everybody's cup of tea, I'll be very honest with you, and especially um, there were a fair amount, uh, not a fair, but we had two or three clinicians who were very much in the you know, individual provider mat who were close to retirement and didn't think the team management piece was um, something they could, they could do. And I think we talked about this yesterday as well, delegation is also a big piece of the communication piece and not something a lot of some folks felt comfortable with. So recognizing that in order to make this transition from, there were some folks who decided that this wasn't going to be, um, this wasn't gonna work for them, but those who did end up staying found that you know when you work with this model of a group of folks taking care of it and, and having a good team structure, that it did, uh, that it was you know more attractive to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh. <laughs> 
two questions. First is, do you see a differential between centers that are urban-based versus centers that are rural? And then the second question was, how important was the social worker to the, to the team, and do trainees recognize that person's importance? Sure, sure. So the first question, so out of the five original sites, um, the, Boise was the only one that was more of a rural setting. Um, so you, San Francisco, Cleveland, um, Seattle, and West Haven were more the um, more urban settings. Boise in of itself, we didn't see a big difference in terms of, now one thing I will say is the rural settings has allowed for folks to be, um, Boise to attract more folks to want to do rural medicine. And so more trainees go there to, to specifically with that. But in terms of um, you know big differences in our numbers and things like that, we haven't really seen it. But it is kind of four to one right now. And then the social work is a really critical piece of the team. In fact, we just had our social work students start last year. And people comment on the fact that it makes a world of difference. She's in our interdisciplinary conferences now on uh, Friday morning. But Pam Lynch, who's our social work from clinic, is, it does come to our Friday morning sessions. And the Aligning Care co uh, Conference that I was mentioning, I'll tell you, at least 80% of the issues are social determinants of health, and a lot of the discussions are around resources, especially in the VA. Those who've worked at the VA know that you know a lot of it is how do I hook them up to, you know, this, um, you know, the DOM, or how do I get them to this specific home health, or so I'll, they've recognized that it isn't. I think the residents recognize it isn't about me just being able to you know, know what the diagnosis is. It's really about getting these resources aligned. And we learn some, something new every Friday when we do this. So it's becoming very critical. Hi. Hi. Cleveland. Hail from Cleveland. Went to FPV and Ursuline College. Oh, right. So, and I trained at the VA. So oh. it's really wonderful to have you here. Oh, thank you. Um, one of the questions I have is your NP residents. I'm a nurse practitioner in palliative care here, but I'm very curious about your residency program. Sure. Because in the olden days, when I attended school, we just did clinical hours. And I'm wondering how that's structured. And is it at a postgraduate residency, or is it while they're in training? No, it's a postgraduate residency, and it's a one-year residency. So they, they um, so I, I know I focused a little more on the medicine side of things, which is three years. But NP residents are one year, mm -hmm. and they come. So a lot of our NP students that come to do the COE end up staying on for the, the residency. So that's how we recruit. But it's it, we get four residents per year. And actually, um, used to we, we thought that we wouldn't get. So last year, for instance, we had 18 applicants just for those four spots. Um, it's it's volunteer, so you know it's not mandatory. But it's folks who want to come to to get that additional training within a supervised setting. And are they paid? Yes. Yeah. yeah it's and it's actually Office of Academic Affiliations pays for those. Lots, just like I think they're starting a program here. So, a couple more brief questions, John, and then we'll go around. Uh, ex excellent talk. Oh, thank you. Uh, I was uh, pleased to see the, the use of the word teamless. I know that's something that uh, we are trying, as I was a jury, a primary care jury, attrition, that we we're trying to move to that type of model and piloting it. My question is is that the buy in of the team, in particular, we're very much interdisciplinary but trying to, say, have both the um, associate provider and a physician uh, managing the team, trying to uh, convince patients, really, that we do work as a team. Mm -hmm. A lot easier buy-in in the younger patient population, in our experience, than in the older, more multimorbid uh, population. And we just want sure. to hear your thoughts on uh, 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I'll just say that um, I expected a little more um, pushback from the, the veterans. I'll be very honest, there was a, actually more pushback from the teamlets in the beginning to have. So one thing I did do was every teamlet has to have an associate provider. So originally there was some discussion about, oh, we're only going to make team A, B, and C resident teams, and everybody else is not going to have that. And I happened to be clinic director at that time, and I decided that was not a good idea because it was going to create a, you know, I, I think there's many ways to skin this, I, but I just was worried that what's going to happen is, you know, you're going to have sort of two systems of care within the same institution, and then there's going to be people vying for, well, I don't want to be on the you know, resident team that I want to be in. So we just put an end to that. Um, and then we're an academic center. So my argument was, you know, if you signed up to be here, get ready to work with learners. That's kind of what you did, you know. So, um, and I think the other piece was the veterans. So one thing I, I think is a key point is when we actually put two residents on the team and that they were going to be flipping, we were concerned the veterans are going to be like, are you kidding me? I don't know who's my provider and blah, blah. It turns out the veterans actually... The RN care manager was kind of their point person to the to sort of access, and as long as that person was co constant, and then compared to our old system where the residents were kind of you know in and out, sort of a revolving door mechanism, compared to that, two people was like, oh, we can handle this. So it was all relative. I think now actually it's interesting because I think if we did go to a not like a sort of we were to go back to old ways, I think the veterans would have a really big problem. It's like I don't know who my provider is. This way they actually knew who the exact folks were on their teamlet. So less of concerns from the veterans, more from the teamlets. But we we think we handled that. <laughs> I know there are more questions, and I'm going to ask you to come down to meet up with me uh, because of the timing. Thank you so much thank you for so being with us. Yeah, thank you.